Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning into our church podcast. This week's sermon is from our series, The Core, where we are taking a look at the values of our church stands on. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Well, amen. I wish with all of me that I could share the gospel just like that, that clear and that concise. But every time I watch that video, I'm reminded of a gospel that is so above and beyond me. And it's so above beyond what I can even begin to, I feel like I'm not worthy to be able to even be able to talk about it. But I find in scripture several times that Paul says that we need to live worthy of the gospel. And I listen to that and I'm like, there is nothing about Kyle that is worthy of that gospel. I think about my past and my, you know, all the things that I've been through and the shame that fills my life or the sin that's been there. And I look at that and it's like, God calls us to live worthy of that. (laughs) When we place ourselves in comparison to that, we just, we have to just fall apart when we think about who God is. We look, and Paul says four times in scripture about living worthy of God or living worthy of the gospel. The first time we find it is in Colossians 1, 9 and 10. He says, so uh, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through the all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. He goes on in Philippians 1.27. <laughs> he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's saying this while he's in prison of all places. You know, conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And finally, Ephesians 4.1, and this is where he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Those are some hefty words to read. I mean, you think about the gospel and we're called to live worthy of the gospel. I look at myself and I know I do not have any worth in myself. And so how do we actually live worthy of the gospel? Um, Joel has given me the privilege to speak today about missions. And missions is so heavy on my heart and I love it so much. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of my life that I, I, I enjoy doing missions and stuff, I did it for the wrong reason and I did it in the wrong way. I was doing it out of religion and I wasn't doing it out of a relationship. And so I wanna look at what it means to actually be a part of the church and to be commanded to do missions, what it takes to do missions. And the reason why we looked at this worthiness and these passages that Paul gives us about living worthy of God is that that's our answer for missions. Our answer is to live worthy of the gospel, but again, that's tough. There's a, there's a split there because I look at myself and I know there's not one thing worthy in me. 
of the gospel. So how do we actually live worthy of the gospel? Well, the answer is simple, but yet it's so complex at the same time. You see, living worthy of the gospel means that we got to live worthy of the God, of the creators of the heavens of earth. Do you know who God is? We got to ask ourselves, what are the names of God? I think about myself and the names I've been given in my past um, and just the, the funny nicknames and stuff. But then I have to always go back and look, well, what names were given to God? And we think about he was given the name Elohim, the creator of the heavens and earth, Yahweh, self-existent one, star breather, Alpha Omega, El Elyon, the El Olom, the El Roy, which means everlasting God and the God most high and the God who sees. It's that God that we're supposed to live worthy of. And every time I think about that, I'm just like, I'm Kyle on earth and, you know, I like golf and mint chocolate chip ice cream, and I'm supposed to live worthy of that. And it's, it, it tears me up every time I read this because I'm like, it's not possible for me to do that, and that's truth there. But yet it is possible for God to enable us to live worthy of the gospel by his spirit and life that he puts inside of us. And see, missions is living worthy of the gospel, not because of what you do, because you can do nothing to live worthy of the gospel. You can only live by the life of God that he places inside of you, and that is worthy of the gospel. And so that's what we must do to do missions. We must live worthy of the gospel by giving ourselves to Christ and being filled with the spirit so that we can live worthy of it. And so that's what we are going to look at. You see, we always fall apart when we ask about what we're supposed to do with our lives. Where are we supposed to go? What job am I supposed to have? What's wrong with me? I know when you're a, a, in Sunday school, when you're younger, the answer for everything was Jesus. Everything was just, your answer was Jesus when you were younger. But the older you get, you realize Jesus isn't the answer as much anymore. It kind of flips to something more complicated. And so what do we use? We use God's will. So when we say, what's wrong with my life? Well, are you following God's will? <laughs> what, what's, what's happening? You know, what am I supposed to do with my future? Well, what's God's will for your life? We use it for everything as adults, but yet we don't truly fully understand what we're saying when we say, what's God's will? We live in confusion over that. But the reality is God's will for our lives is to love God and love others. And it's simple to say, but there is only one way that is possible. And that is that we are no longer slaves to flesh. We're no longer slaves to who I am, Kyle. I am no longer a slave to this body. I'm no longer a slave to the material things of this world. I give it all up and I become a slave to something else. You see, we buy the lie in, in the fact that when we say my chains are gone and I've been set free, we buy this lie that you are absolutely free, that, that, that it's, it's in every area of your life you've been set free, but the truth is you've been set free from your flesh. You've been set free from your sin. You've been set free from your, your, your shame, but you've been set under a new master. It's no longer your flesh. It's God, and God loves you, and God speaks truth into your life. And so our first point is to do missions, we must be a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And we find this in Romans 12, one through two. And Paul writes saying, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I wonder how many of us walked in here today feeling like a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God. 
And that's a tough thing to ask ourselves. But what does Paul open up with? He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, respond. There's a reason why Paul says, in view of God's mercy, because oftentimes when we respond to God and we try to do missions and we try to serve him, we end up doing this out of our religious flesh that takes all of us. We try to serve him in ways in which we sing songs and we do good deeds and we try to do mission work. But in the end, the only thing we're doing is serving our flesh. But God has called us to be a living sacrifice. And it says, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. What is God's mercy? Well, we just heard the gospel. We just heard how we in sin turn from God. Paul writes this in Romans 1 through 12. He says, in sin, you rebelled against God. In sin, you turned against him and you deserve the wages of sin, which is death. We deserve death. Every single one of us, every single person ever born deserves the wages of sin. But God was a loving God and a gracious God, and he humbled himself to a form of human, and he lived a perfect life for us so that he could be a substitute, so that he could die on a cross and pay that wage that we deserve. That's mercy, that God loved you so much he would die for you. That's what a living sacrifice looks like. But you see, what happens is we take this and when we read this verse, we never think about God in response and in view of his mercy. Because when I read about that, I can't help but say, man, that God did that for me. That great Elohim did that for me. I cannot help but respond to him and what he commands me to do, the grace that he gives me. And so we're called to be a living sacrifice. And one of the things that's so hard for us about being living sacrifices is we don't know how to serve God as our master. In reality, we're so used to living in our flesh. We try to serve God by the way we serve our flesh. We try to do good deeds because that's what our flesh wants us to do. We try to, we try to say things that make us look better because that's what our flesh wants us to do. And that was what our old master commanded us to do. And so we try to respond to God in a way that which we, we would respond to our flesh. But if we remember from Mary and Martha, Martha was working and working and working, and she was doing everything she could to try to serve God, to try to serve Jesus and build this awesome meal for him. And in a sense, she was trying to give her best to him. But in the response, she got agitated because she wasn't feeling what she thought she would feel by doing all this good stuff. And so she got agitated and began to talk against Jesus and talk against her sister, and God's response was, Mary has chosen a good portion what was Mary's portion? To just sit at the feet of Jesus and to be filled with this life. You see, a living sacrifice takes life. You can't be a living sacrifice if you don't have life. But Jesus often responded to the Pharisees by telling them, you are whitewashed tombs, meaning the inside of you is dead. And when you speak out, you speak out death. You don't speak out life. You know, I always think about life. Adam had a body. It wasn't until God breathe into it? Did he have life? I wonder how many of us are trying to serve God, but yet we haven't allowed him to breathe into our life so that we could speak out the life he gave to us because missions is a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice takes life, and to give a life sacrifice to God, you have to have life. And so we must begin by becoming a living sacrifice. 
You see, we want to serve God in ways that our old master wanted to, but we never take time to sit and be still and know that he is God. And when we try to give him praise and worship, the reality is often we're trying to steal worship for ourselves. A.W. Tozer has this powerful quote that I heard when I was in seminary that has wrecked my heart for a long time, and that is, he says, Christians don't tell lies. They come to church and sing them. Because we come to church and we sing things like, it is well with my soul, and we sing things like, I will walk upon the waters, and we sing all these incredible statements about our faith with God, (laughs) and yet Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday you don't see those words taking action. And so I wonder, are we actually truly being living sacrifices and that takes the breath of God into our life to be able to speak back to him the life that he has given us? And that's why his response to Mary, Jesus' response to Mary was, be still, you know, just just sit, you know, learn from me. And what was Mary able to do in response? To turn around and give back to God the life that he had given her. You see, we begin missions by becoming a living sacrifice, by sitting at the feet of God, giving up everything about ourselves to him so that we can be filled with his life, so that we can speak back to him the grace that he has given us. You see, in my life, I know that under the old master, under my flesh, whenever I would try to serve God when I was in seminary, I thought studying everything about this word here, like getting a vast amount of knowledge about things like numbers. I mean, who studies deeply into numbers. I thought like if I knew all these numbers and I knew all the number of sheep they had or something, that I would be a better Christian or I would be able to serve God better in a sense. But that was my flesh trying to respond to God. That was my flesh trying to serve or my flesh I was trying to serve. And so that didn't work. So I thought, all right, I'm going to work for a big church and I'm going to do cool things with them and we're going to have great mission trips and it's going to be incredible. And I still felt hopeless. I still felt lifeless. And that's true because I was speaking out of a dead heart. I wasn't giving back to God the life that he was placing into my heart. I was taking that life and bringing it to myself and stealing it. When in reality, he gave it to me to give back to him. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice for God. So we fall under a new master. You see, when the enemy is doing everything he can to drown us in fear, We have to remember that you're no longer a slave to fear. You're a slave to victory. You're no longer a slave to doubt. You're a slave to peace and truth. You see, God is a God of truth and peace and victory. And he is a God that says that no matter what happens, lean on me. I've got you. But yet, I wonder how many of us are leaning on our flesh. And as we walk and try to do things for God, We just feel fear. See, living sacrifice lives by the breath of God, which is peace and true, and it brings hope into our lives. And Paul, just previously in Romans 8, says, the life that you have, that you live by, that you give back to God, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. No heights, nor depths, nor famine, nor persecution, or nakedness, or or sword, or anything. Nothing can separate you from God's love. That's what God breathes into us. And that's what we give back to God in worship. You see, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice so that this can be our worship to God. And and we don't do this just because we want to feel good about ourselves. We do this because it's in view 
of God's mercies. It's in view of the grace of God. It's in view of how amazing and powerful his love is for us. We cannot help but throw ourselves at his feet and say, use me, here I am. Please, God, send me. That's a living sacrifice. That's what he does. And you know how we know that? That's what he did for us. And so Piper breaks down the portion of worship because, you know, Paul says that a living sacrifice, this is our true and proper worship to God. And so our first point is a living sacrifice. Our second point is missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And that doesn't mean people aren't singing names and stuff. I, I assure you, I assure you that there are people in this world that do not believe in God who tell more people about Jesus than you do. There is a reality that, that there are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons that go around this world sharing the name of Jesus and yet they don't have faith in a true relationship with him and they're just serving him, doing this religious thing off of their flesh, but they're not bringing worship to him because they don't have the life to give to others. And so we need to be careful not to boast in ourselves and boast in our flesh that Paul often talks about. Paul often references that it's in my weakness I am made strong. And I was talking to my wife just the other night, and it was, it was this, we came up in a conversation about our weakness and how it's such a cool thing that when you are broken and when you are pulled apart and when your heart is opened up in a raw and intimate way, <laughs> that's when God's love and life pours out all the more into others. It's so cool what God can do when we are most weak. And so we need to throw aside this, this illusion of strength and begin to throw ourselves in weakness at God and let him speak through our lives. Let him breathe through us and have his life overflow our hearts into the lives of others. Because missions exist because worship doesn't. And what that tells me, what I see is that people aren't living as a living sacrifice. It's as simple as that. People might be saying Jesus' name. People might be talking about knowledge that is in reference to Jesus. People might be sharing truths about him, historical facts. But there is a life that God places inside of you, and it's that life that we need to be sharing and proclaiming. It's that life that is the essence of our worship. It's that life that is the essence of our mission. It's that life that we need to bring to the lifeless. It's that hope that we need to bring to the hopeless. And so worship is us being filled with that life. And so what we do is we go to the ends of the earth to worship God. It's not go to the ends of the earth to build a well. It's not go to my work and, and do a good deed to a friend there. It's let's worship God wherever we are at the ends of the earth because that's what we're called to do, to worship God. You see, missions exist because worship doesn't. And, and to believe that God calls us to worship him at the, from every nation, every tribe, we find in Isaiah 43, 67, it says, I will say to the north, give up and, go, and, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created you to worship. Whose glory did he create you for? He didn't create you for yourself. He created you to give him praise and glory and honor. 
And so since the beginning of time, we've bought this lie about worship um, that God has been in battle against Satan over worship. We've bought this lie that God is in tension against Satan, but that's a lie because God already has victory over Satan. You see, we buy this lie that, 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 that Satan is the one that God is in battle against. God is in battle against your heart and the idolatry of you wanting to worship something other than him. That's the battle we face. That's the battle you face. We get into these moments in missions where when we try to do good things, but then we fail and we fall down, we feel like we have failed because we've placed all hope in ourselves and we try to worship ourselves. But... <laughs> But that's what the enemy wants you to believe. The enemy wants you to believe that in your weakness, you are weak and you stay weak and you are a failure. That's what your flesh tells you. That's what your flesh wants you to feel. But God proclaims life, he proclaims truth, and he gives you strength and he gives you worship that you can give to the world. And so when we think about that battle, Adam and Eve, they were twisted, right? Satan's goal was never to to uh, his goal was to his goal was to take Eve and not cause her to worship Satan, but to cause her to worship herself. That's what we got to think about when we fight the battle to become a living sacrifice. We're not fighting against Satan; we're fighting against our flesh. It's our flesh that wants us to pull all worship away from God and give it to ourselves. But God created us. He created Adam, and what did he do with Adam? Adam didn't have life until God breathed into it. God wants that breath of life given back to him because it was his in the first place. You never owned it. It's always been God's, and God owns it, and God wants it. And it says in Scripture that God is jealous for it, right? Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so our goal of living sacrifices that bring pure and blameless worship to God is alive more than ever. And we find that, that every one day in Romans 14 11, as, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And it's so crazy to me about worship and giving and being a living sacrifice. Every time this comes up, when I think about missions, I think about Cain and Abel. I think about how we have two brothers and we have two different forms of worship. We have one brother who was a great hunter and, and he, he, he gave to God the best of his, of, his, of his hunting. He gave him the best, the fattest, the, the choicest of meat. And when he get offered up as a sacrifice to God, scripture says it smelled good. Like it had this pleasant aroma to it. It's like perfume to us. It smells good and it's attractive and it draws us in. But then when his brother gave a sacrifice, an offering of his crop, he didn't grab the first fruits of his crop. He didn't grab the best of his crop. He gave the sloppy seconds. And so when he offered that up to God, it says that it didn't smell good to him. It wasn't pleasant and it wasn't aroma. And I wonder how many times we come to church and we try to offer up praise to God, but we're just giving him sloppy seconds and not the best. That we're just giving him a breath that is not pleasant. And yet he calls us to give the first fruits. You know, the funny thing about Cain and Abel, their crops and their, their flocks, they were gods in the first place and God gave them to them. 
So God was just seeing how responsible they would be with what God had given them. And I wonder how responsible we've been with the life that God has given us. You see, in a lot of missions, I wonder if we call ourselves Christian, if we call ourselves believers, that means there's a life inside of us, and that means we have a new master, that we're no longer a slave to our flesh, but we're a slave to the grace of God. We're a slave to the truth of God, and that truth gives us a command. <laughs> and our final point is three commands that we look at. Three commands that we have in response to God and the goal of missions and, and the commands that he give us. And so those three commands are go, send, or disobey. There's no gray area in this. And the reason why all those are commands, you'll see, you see, God calls us to fulfill the great commission. Go therefore, right, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and worship to the ends of the earth. There one day every tongue and tribe will be before God, and every tongue and tribe will be worshiping God. So we know we still have a goal so long as every tongue and every tribe is not worshiping. You know why you're here right now, and you are not in heaven, and God hasn't ended all things? because there's a seat beside you that's empty. One day when every person that he has called comes, he will return and will spend eternity in peace. When I look around this room, I wonder how many more chairs do we need to fill? You see, Joel always talks about numbers, right? He always talks about how numbers are souls, and it's so true. We like numbers because we know if there's 100 people, that's 100 souls. If there's 200, if there's 1,000, that's 1,000, 200, whatever number of souls that we have. Those are that many people hearing the gospel, hearing life and hope and truth. And I do the same thing when I look at chairs. Because I'm always broken about when I come here on Sundays and Wednesdays. I look at a chair and I say, what friend could have filled that chair? What friend does not have the hope that I have? What friend fills that chair right there that God has called me to go and worship with him, to go and share his life to, to share that hope to, and yet that chair remains empty? We have a big burden before us. It's a command to go and share the gospel. But then we also have a command to send. And what that means is God gives us a command to disciple, right? To make disciples. And that doesn't mean you just evangelize someone and you leave them. That means you grow in community. You worship with them. You disciple them. You grow them. You teach them. That Paul, Barnabas, Timothy principle where we have someone above us that's pouring into our hearts. We have someone that's living beside us. And then below us, we have a Timothy that we pour into and disciple so that they can go and make disciples. Ascending. And so we have given, we've been given two commands from God, go and send. But then there's a final command when it comes to missions. <laughs> That's disobey. The truth is, that one isn't from God. That one's from your flesh. That's from your old master. Every time we disobey to go and send, we fall under our old ways. We fall under our flesh. I wonder how many of us are living by that flesh more than we are the grace of God. Because it's, it's black and white. There's no gray in this. You either go, send, or disobey. And when I was, when I was, when I was in seminary, I was greatly inspired by this, uh, by this missionary. And He's not a very common name like, you know, Lottie Moon or Adoniram Judson or, you know, the Elliots. It's not a name like that. 
but his name was William Borden. And William Borden was rich. I mean, he had money. Back in his day, it was 1904, he had a million dollars to his name, all right? That is a lot of money in 1904. He was a millionaire, and he was an heir to the Borden uh, uh, wealth, which means he wasn't just a million, he had millions to his name in that time. And not only was he a millionaire, but he had the best education in the world. Right? He graduated high school and got into Yale and decided to go to Yale. But before he went to Yale, what William did was he decided for his graduation gift, he wanted to travel the world. He wanted to see the ends of the earth. He wanted to go to Mongolia and Asia and, and South America. And he just wanted to see the world. But while he was out on his journey, he saw how dark and worshipless this world is. He saw how there weren't many people worshiping God at the ends of the earth. So he had this great burden and conviction in his life, and he wrote to his friends saying, God has called me to be a missionary. He wrote to his friends saying, I've called to go serve and, and love God at the ends of the earth. And his friends were like, dude, you're not gonna do that. <laughs> they, I mean, they're like, you're rich, you got great education, you're gonna go to Yale, like, you're not gonna do that, just don't. Well, that day in response, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, he wrote, no reserves. Because he knew so long as he held on to his flesh and he held on to his pride and his image and he held on to money and he held on to everything that, the, the expectations of his family to continue the family name. When he held on to those, he was holding on to his flesh. And so he knew to be a living sacrifice, <laughs> he had to have no reserves. He couldn't hold on to that anymore. It means he had to drop all that, so he wrote no reserves in his Bible. And so he goes to Yale, and he begins serving at Yale. And immediately, all of his friends noticed something about him. They noticed that there was a difference about him, and that was the no reserves. It says in his biography that William Borden, that when he was at Yale, he, would, he, he started praying with a friend at, at, in the cafeteria in a common room. And that was how he began to do his missions to Yale. And Within a year or two, out of 1,300 students at Yale, 1,000 of them were in Bible studies because of, his, because of his no reserves. And so he had such an impact. And not only was he leading and teaching and having no reserves in his life, but, but he began to serve the homeless. It says his friends always said that we never saw him on campus. Like he was never at Yale unless he was leading Bible studies. It says that he was always in the streets with the drunks, bringing them to his uh, ministry that he started himself, that he was dragging them to the Hope Yale ministry that he began and founded and used his money to start. And so and, and that he used his own wealth to start. And so he was always serving and, and going after, it says he always loved the orphans and the widows. And you could just see through his biography, someone who truly was a living sacrifice. And and one of those things that's when you read it, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this is what I should be doing. This is what my life should look like. But it's convicting because you see, he goes on and while he was at Yale, he got called to go to the, uh, he got called to go uh, reach the uh, Muslim Kansu people in China. And so uh, he finished Yale. And at that point when he got this, people were like, man, I don't know if you really want to do that. That's a tough place to go. That's, that's I mean, you really want to go to China and reach the Muslims there? And so he began to just have this passion even furthered not these doubts to speak into his life, not the flesh to speak into his life, but he allowed God to continue to speak. And he said, 
He wrote in his journal once, he said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. <laughs> every time. Every time something comes up, say yes to Jesus. Because that's what a living sacrifice does. It says yes to Jesus in everything. And so he, he, he finished Yale and he graduated. And while he was there, he um, f- founded this incredible uh, uh, fraternity for Christians and all this stuff. And he uh, was able to speak at a conference with thousands of Christians. And his influence was growing. He's still just in his early 20s. He's like 23 at this point. And so when he graduates, what he ends up doing is he goes to Princeton. When he's at Princeton, he gets called to those Muslim people. And so his friends were like, I don't know if you want to do that. He hops on a boat, goes overseas to Egypt. And on his way to Egypt, he wrote the words in the back of his Bible, no retreats. Because you see, when we have reserves, our reserves pull us back. And they, it's our flesh saying, oh, well, you can be comfortable inside this boat. Don't go out and step upon the water. It's, it's safer to drown in this boat than it is to step out on water. And so that's what it means to have reserves. And then he says no retreats because you know the truth about the gospel? It's victory. So when you retreat because of you and you have victory, you're living by something else other than God. God has proclaimed victory in the gospel and we can go proclaim victory at the ends of the earth. And so he said no retreats because he knew he had victory in Christ. And then... He gets to Egypt, and when he's in Egypt, he's studying um, Arabic um, because he wanted to do his best to, to study and, and to begin to do missions. And his first month in Egypt, William contracted spinal meningitis, and he died. He died his first month going with no reserves and no retreats. But you know what the coolest thing about his story? It's not a sad story. That's not a sad story because the last words, and he didn't view it as a sad story. He didn't see himself as a sad story. What he saw is what he wrote as his last words of his life in the back of his Bible. No regrets. Because if you truly have Christ, your life, if you're a living sacrifice, you begin to speak Philippians 1.21 into your soul. That is to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so he had no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. And I wonder, in conclusion, in thinking about him, you know, how are we going to respond to God? Are we going to go, send, or disobey? And then if we go or if we are sending, are we going to say no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets? Because that, that is the picture of a living sacrifice. And that's my prayer. You see, again, we have these chairs all around this room. Every single one of those is a soul. And every single one of you knows you have a friend that does not have the gospel. What reserves are keeping you from going today to share the gospel to them? What retreats are you falling into to not go share the gospel? And I wonder if your regret is full in your life right now. See, I don't wanna die and stand before God and know that that chair could have been filled because I could have gone Instead, I clung to my flesh. I could have gone, but instead, I believed the lie of fear instead of victory. (laughs) And I don't want to die with regrets. And so, in conclusion, as a band comes back up, I want to share something. Because I know some of us have been trying so hard to serve God and give him the best of our lives. And the truth is, what I said before, (laughs) you can't give life unless you have life. 
And I wonder if you would take a second and just look at the fruits of your life. Do you have that passion? Do you have those reserves? Do you have no retreats? I mean, do you have that fruit of victory in Christ? The proclamation of the gospel and how powerful it is, how it speaks into our lives. Can you truly proclaim songs, come here and sing and not be a lie, but say, it is well with my soul. To proclaim words over your life like Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. And if you don't have that, today is the day to have life. Today is the day to have hope, and that today is the day to grab onto victory.